podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. You know who it is, Chris Stemp here. So glad to have you joining us. How is your 2019 going? Hopefully you're enjoying it, getting some good reading in. Maybe you're still clinging on to that New Year's resolution. That would be nice. Consider it a win, okay, because it's almost February, the time of recording this. Well... We're going to stir the pot. This is not going to be your standard happy-go-lucky podcast. It's time to get real. It's time to check out the state of the world as we interview Sean McFate. And specifically, we're talking about his new book called The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder. With all the madness going on in the world, I'm sure you have thought about where are we going, what's happening. What is this place going to be like for my children? And as I asked Sean in this interview, why can't we all just get along? Well, much of this is answered as we talk to Sean about the new rules of war and the future of warfare, as well as global stability. So why Sean? Well, Sean is a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He's also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, which is a think tank. And he served as a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. Of course, wouldn't be smart people unless, you know, he went to Brown University, got his master's from Harvard, his Ph.D. from London School of Economics. He's just one of those incredible people. Happy to have him on. Going to turn it over to Sean. But listen, Sean was nice enough to send us a few books and we're giving them away on top of the 200 or so other books that I have continuously getting delivered to my house. If you want one, head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. Sign up there. We will be sending you a survey and in return, send you a book. We'll also be asking your opinion throughout the year on things such as, hey, what do you think of the new logo? Which is coming soon. So that's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. All right, let's get into it. We are talking to Sean McFate about many things, including his new book, the new rules of war. Enjoy. You know, we were just talking, I like to let the audience in, but you are in Washington. So you are probably, it depends on what time I leave my house. Okay. If I leave now, I could meet up with you in 30 minutes. If I leave at three o'clock, it could take two hours. So you are very close to me. So next time we were saying we're going to do it in person. That's right. In the afternoon, mid-afternoon, yeah, so you don't have to spend two hours in traffic, yeah. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, you can drive around D.C. from 11.30 to about 2. That's it. That's your time zone. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it makes sense given that you are all about, you know, national security is, is what you do. And Washington's the hub, right? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your new book, The New Rules of War. Uh, but first, as I like to start off, Give us a a quick kind of two minute, who are you, where'd you come from, why are you here? 
Well, my name is Sean McFate. Um, I grew up in Northeast America and after college became a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. And then after that, I became a private military contractor, mostly in Africa, some would say mercenary. Um, I looked up one day, saw that there were very few old people in my profession and decided to get out of it and uh, ended up going to graduate school, got a PhD, and I'm now a professor at Georgetown and the National Defense University where I teach military strategy. Tell me, what was it about kind of military strategy that uh, not only interested you, because I think it interests a lot of young men, what was it that interested you enough to make it your life's work? Well, like most things in life, at least my life, it wasn't choice. It's sort of, you know, as they say, life is what happens when you make other plans. What I wanted to do as a kid, I never was interested in G.I. Joe. I was like the nerdy kid in Saturday reading the encyclopedia in the library. That was fascinating to me. And I wanted to be a professor of philosophy at a liberal arts college in New England with elbow patches and a pipe. Um, but I... I uh, had an epiphany in college that, well, two things. One is that um, I didn't want to be a professor who, uh, of like philosophy or anything, who had never left the academy, who had never left the ivory tower. Uh, I wanted to go out there and taste the world. And I thought uh, one way to do that for moral philosophy is to serve as a paratrooper, right? You know, <laughs> battlefield uh, morality at, at its best. Um, also, as a kid from a very young age, my, my grandfather was, was a World War II vet. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was shot and abandoned for dead by both the Americans and the Germans. His mother got the telegram. He was nursed to health by some Belgian nuns. He never spoke about the war like many people of his generation, but he always told me as a young boy, Sean, you will serve whatever you do after college or whatever. You will spend some time, serve your country in the military, and then do whatever you want to do. And that stuck with me. So I felt a very powerful calling to serve. And then also, to my utter surprise, I, you know, I was this poety, I was actually a violinist. I was this musical, scrawny kid. And I found out I was actually really good at kicking people out, you know, the airplane door and following them. <laughs> so I found this new self of my, you know, you know, and this sort of new leading men, uh, you know, sort of adventure, uh, testing myself in spirit, soul, and body. All of those things were were callings to me. You really do have this interesting background. It's almost like that um, Spider-Man type thing. It feels like, right? You take the 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 mask off and everything and this intellectual cerebral right brown harvard london school of economics phd etc then you put the mask on and like you said mercenary going to 65 countries paratrooper <laughs> i mean I, it really doesn't add up and it doesn't need to but how does it add up to you well that, yeah, it's, a, it's a great question you know so like <clears throat> when i was a kid i never sought to have a conventional career that was never i was wanted to do things that were interesting to me and i felt passionate about which, frankly, if you got on some like college graduation stage and that was your your message to the college class, you'd probably get kicked off the stage, right? <laughs> um, you know, there's a, especially in the Ivy League, and I you know I was in the Ivy League for a long time. There's a lot of trophy hunters there. You know, these are people who just are looking for the next hoop to jump through, and they collect um, accolades, and and they are very impressive people. But that didn't a life of that did not appeal to me. Um, and so I took the, the, the cliched lesser path not taken 
And it just ended up here. I didn't think 25 years ago that I would still be doing things with the military, but I was I was very interested in war and warfare because it brings out the absolute best and worst in humanity. Uh, it is a constant universal, and that's what sort of led me to write about it. Both nonfiction, I'm also a novelist. I write uh, novels uh, based on actual things I've done uh, as a way to think about them, as a way to share them. I can't wait to utilize that unique background to answer some of these questions, which I, I have to say have been ringing in my mind for over a decade. I feel like there's a certain age range where 9-11 is a defining, a highly defining point in their lives. And, and I'm not um, disparaging anybody's experience of 9-11, but I was a freshman in college, right? I was trying to find my place in the world, trying to understand the world. First time out, I mean, literally September, right? So you're in college for a month into the real world on your own and this happens. And so it has shaped the way I think about almost everything. Not that your book is about that, but it's about this idea of war in general. And I want to just start with this. Why is war so timeless? Why can't we all just get along? It's a, I wish we could. You know, I wish that we didn't have to kill each other, but it seems like the one universal in human history is that no matter how enlightened we become, we will always spend time figuring out how to kill one another. Um, I, I do not believe that, as some do, um, that we can sort of either outlaw or regulate war or warfare. I think that's a form of hubris that yields more suffering than it solves. And I don't think we can get rid of it because there are all people fight wars for all sorts of reasons. If you can think of why somebody would fight a war, I'm sure there's a war in history where that was the case. People fight wars out of fear, greed, vanity, glory, or natural resources. Unless we fix those problems in the next millennia, we're going to be fighting wars again. So my only question, which is partly why I wrote this book, The New Rules of War, is like, well, if we have to fight wars, then we have an obligation to do it as humanely as possible. Uh, how do we do it as efficiently as possible, humanely as possible, and not drag things al along, which harms everybody? One of the things along those lines that I've just I've been grappling with, and I actually was talking to somebody, I saw something online about it, was the only way we will stop killing each other is if we're invaded by someone else, like, you know, an alien of some sort. Right. right. And and I think it goes back to that tribalism, right? We we have to be, I don't know, at odds with someone, but it's whoever is least like us in either ideology or appearance. Have you ever thought about that at all? Like what it's going to take for us to stop completely? Well, I think yeah, if we were invaded by an alien race <laughs> yeah. and they didn't just take us over and make us into slaves immediately. Um, yeah, that might be it. That would probably do it. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I, I don't know what, what type of emergency would galvanize humanity in such a way that could sort of permanently or durably end conflict. Um, and I think what other people have tried to do is to try to regulate like the laws of war. Um, but the laws of war as anybody who's been on the ground will tell you is a marvelous fiction. It doesn't really exist. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I hate to be uh, a skeptic when it comes to these things, but I do, I do think that there's things to lessen it. I do think like the power of 
uh, of the economy, of like if people are generally healthy, wealthy, and wise, they might be less inclined to to fight each other. But even that is hard. You know, there's all sorts of examples where that's not the case in history. So, you know, it's a big shoulder. You know, it's a big hands in the air. I wish I knew what the solution was and get a Nobel Prize, but I'm not counting on it. I am. So hopefully you can figure it out. Right. Um, a couple of questions here right off the bat. One that I, I just have been dying to ask you is, in your opinion, given and again, I, I want people to understand like this. Not only have you been on the front lines, but it is your life of researching, teaching, understanding. So you really have this well-rounded opinion. What is the greatest threat to America? What or who, I should say. And then what or who is the greatest threat to civilization? Oh, dear. Well, Washington, D.C. is I, is a, where I live, and I have been here for about, you know, on and off for 20 years. Um, in some ways, is, is magnificent kabuki theater, right, when it comes to these questions. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, you know, it, you know, America has, in fact, never been safer uh, in the last, it's been it's never been safer than, than sort of right now. Yeah. Uh, and the, and then the cold war, even though we have the threat of total annihilation from nuclear weapons, short of that, it was actually fairly safe to be an American. Uh, if you compare it to like, you know, growing up in the Congo or Iraq under Saddam Hussein or just most any place else that's not Sweden, um, it, it, America doesn't really have a lot of enemies and, and people, as you know, drum up boogeyman and boogeywoman for that matter yeah all sorts of nefarious reasons either for they you know to get elected or to get you know huge contracts and get money or to, to do all sorts of things and what happens now because of our our media cycle is that people don't ask any critical questions like well okay now the, the you know, 10 years ago the big threat was al-qaeda well was it Al-Qaeda was never an existential threat to America. Right. I mean, existential threat to America is like the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, in 1962, where you know, the Soviet Union could have incinerated the entire continent in 20 minutes. That's a threat. It's not Al-Qaeda. And the same today with China and Russia. A lot of that is hyperbole. And, hy and the question is, well, why are people saying that? And is there a, a reason for it, or are they just dumb? Uh, because you, know, you could say that China, you know, the next war is going to be in China. Graham Allison at Harvard, my old advisor, recently said that in a book of his, which is really just, you know, that type of thinking is not just bunk, but it's dangerous because it creates the monster that may not be there right now. So I think that uh, right now the, the biggest threats to, the, to, to our country is, frankly, ourselves. I think wow. that... That is, uh, we need to be careful about this. Uh, and I think your listeners will probably think of a lot of reasons why that could be the case, from the debt to, you know, the government shutdown right now as in, you know, no way to govern, it's an oxymoron, uh, and so forth. And yes, Russia and China and terrorists are out there and they're dangerous, but they're, they're not the biggest danger. And the biggest danger, to answer your second question, to civilization is something that I call durable disorder. And uh, this is what durable disorder is. It's, it's, it's like a, a, a never-ending world of forever wars and constant disputes and um, problems around the world, problems that do not, uh, they do not resolve either one way or the other. They just endure. And it's a disorder. And it's chaos. And where most Americans view chaos as, you know, the sky is falling, let's invest in more sky, 
if you look at the history of world order, as I have, you learn that most of human history has been disordered. Like the Middle Ages were this way. Uh, it's, it was not run by strong states. It was a free-for-all. And only the last 200 years where did strong states come in, like nation states, and sort of make international law and try to govern. But that's an anomaly. We're actually returning back to normal, which is durable disorder. And that will change everything as we know it. This is a completely alien world to the world that we learn about in social studies in sixth grade. Okay, so a lot of things to come of that. And I'm glad you got to the durable disorder because that is a main theme of your book. And I want to spend more time there. But a couple of other things. You mentioned that it is perhaps the safest time to live in the United States. And I actually, as uneducated in comparison to you, agree was just having this conversation actually with somebody the other day where we are talking about what seems like such madness. But go take a snapshot in time, maybe a 20-year snapshot, of almost any other time in the past 200 years and find me one that isn't way worse, right? Like, I mean, if, if you think about it, right, Vietnam, World War One, World War II, Great Depression, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, you know, Nixon, I mean, every time, and I wasn't alive for, I think, every single thing I just named, it must have seemed like this is it. This is the time it's going to end. So what do we need to take away from this understanding that as crazy as it might seem right now, we are trending, in my opinion, in the right direction? Yeah, I think it, I would agree that we're in, it's a net positive, at least for now. I think that the biggest thing is we have to have a perspective of history. I, mean, I love I love history because, you know, as, as, as imperfect a guide as it is for the future, it's really the only one we have. And um, and if you look back about you know the last two hundred years United States history, um, it's it's always it's we're taught with great enthusiasm how wonderful the settlers who went west were, but can you imagine how horrible that would have been? I Awful. mean, yes. yeah, I mean, just I, just for so many reasons, and um, I, I think we have to keep the long view in mind about. You know who we are, and 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 when we answer the question who we are, that's always changing. If you ask people in the 1840s who they were, it'd be very different than the 1940s versus today, and that's part of what a, a country of immigrants and a country of uh, of multiplicity is like. Um, and I think we we need to embrace that and not freak out over the last 24 second news cycle, uh, which is, seems to be like we're we're going down that road. Um, so I think that'd be my only, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, invest in history books, right. Uh, yeah. but that doesn't solve the problem. I think we have to, we have problems that we do have to address. Uh, we all know what those are, I think. Well, and you mentioned invest in history books and I'm not sure of your stance in this area, but I, again, I was talking to somebody else recently about a book that they'd read and I can't think of what it is, but it was drawing parallels between the fall of the Roman empire and what is happening right now. Have you ever looked at that? Because it seems like from, again, my outside perspective, that that would be a good case study. And, yeah. and after reading a little bit about this book and talking about it, it kind of yeah. highlights it. And for example, it says, you know, look, Trump isn't going to be the fall of America in the same way that and he draws correlations to, to Rome. You know, this person wasn't the fall. It was just a big part of it. Is there anything we can take from either Rome or is there a better time in history that you believe really highlights what we should and should not do? Well, you know, every generation or every 10 years, somebody's comparing the fall of the U.S. that's imminent to the fall of Rome. And this is not new. 
Uh, Edward Gibbons wrote the famous three-volume Decline and Fall of Rome in the 17, late 1700s. And it was really not about Rome. It was addressed to his peers in Parliament in Great Britain about the fall of the British Empire. And, of course, the British Empire had another 120 years left in it, at least. Um, so we have to be careful about um, abuses of history. However, I think there's a lot we can learn, especially from Rome. In some ways, we are all the inheritors of Rome. Everything. I mean, Rome is to is with us to this day. Whether not just our alphabet, but our laws, even our military commands in in the U U.S. Army today are based on Roman military commands. It's amazing. Uh, it's in our DNA. Um, and I, I do think that you look at uh, talks of uh, talks like leadership. Um, look at one of the the big turning points was when Marcus Aurelius, who was one of the he he was an emperor who was a Stoic, a very famous. Uh, emperor beloved, very competent at the height of the Roman Empire, and his son Commodus takes over, and he's the opposite of his father. He's a decadent, freakish nightmare. Yet the political institutions of Rome survived. They took a hit, like acid. They ended up murdering him. <laughs> ended up murdering him, uh, and and moved forward. Now I'm not suggesting that for Mr. Trump, um, but it's funny how. You know, the question there is like, how could such a moral man as Marcus Aurelius, such a competent emperor, produce a son uh, of that ineptitude? Uh, and that's a that's a riddle for humanity. It's not just the Roman Empire or today. Um, so, you know, I, I do think we looking at the, you know, not just political institutions, but looking at how people, you know, agency leaders uh, challenge them. And that's that's the crisis I think we many people feel that we are in today. Rome has a, a good history of that, and it doesn't always work out well for Rome. They do things that are, you know, there is the Praetorian Guard, for example, the, the, the bodyguard, the elite bodyguard of the emperor who would frequently murder emperors they didn't like, or even at one point auctioned off the emperor's throne to the highest bidder. Yeah, it's crazy. So uh, we don't want to take too many lessons from Rome, but right. I think we, we should we should pay careful attention. Well, that's a good point. I mean, anytime I think of lessons from Rome, I don't think they're all good, right? I just think yeah. it's, okay, we can use that as a, a litmus test to some degree. The other thing I really wanted to ask you, because personally I, I could not understand it, is, okay, you, you mentioned this return to durable disorder, but specifically in rule number seven in your book, which has 10 rule, it is 10, right? 10 rules? 10, yeah. 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 Uh, rule number seven, new types of world powers will rule. And you talk about nation states are retreating and being replaced by a new class of world powers. Explain that to us, because all I see is, OK, you've got America, which is like the referee of the world. And so they kind of put their hand everywhere. And so where are we going if if these large nation states are retreating? Who's filling the gap? What's the risk there? Yeah, so this is a great question. So again, if you look at human history, and not just the last 400 years, a lot of, uh, you know, the world was never run by states. So when we think of like nation states, that's, that's only a 300 year old invention. Um, most of the world's been run by empires, by powerful families who are like aristocratic families. Uh, they've been, you know, tribal organizations. That's how humans have traditionally governed themselves, strong men, you name it. And we're kind of returning to that world. That's sort of the status quo ante that we're, we're going to uh, as, as you know, states fray. I mean, look, there's 190 so states in the world, depending how you're counting them. Um, 
you know, most of them are weak or failing states. When people think of states, they only think of the top 25, like North America and Western Europe and, you know, parts of East Asia. Most of the other states in the world are dumpster fires, and they're not going to get any better in our lifetime. Uh, meanwhile, you look at like the Fortune 500, they're much more powerful than most states. Okay, so like when ExxonMobil shows up in Africa outside of the Gabon or Ghana, those countries get worried because ExxonMobil has political power and they wield it. They, and it's not just ExxonMobil, it's the entire, there's billion, you know, 62 you know, people in the world are, the richest 62 people in the world own the equivalent to half, the, the bottom half of the world's wealth, wow. right? And so, and they are going to defend that. And these, you know, them, and, and there's also think about oligarchs and think about drug lords and think about all sorts of things, some good, some bad, um, but they're, they're filling in the vacuum. And in the future, we're going to see states not only get out of warfare, well, like wars will be fought around them. States are becoming more like counties, actually. Like they, they own a patch of land. They have to collect some taxes, fix some bridges, but they don't really have a whole lot of control of who comes and goes through their territory. A lot of states in the future will become actually booty in warfare. They will become prizes that, that other more powerful things use over war, and they use them as instruments. And this is actually already happening in Latin America. There's this idea of narco states when a state like, say, El Salvador is kind of run by drug lords, right? Or you know, Mexico or Colombia in the 80s. These are narco states. The states in these cases are, they're not calling the shots. They're they're being they're being fought for. They're like booty, and I think we're going to see more of that. We're sort of seeing that emerge in Africa and parts of South Asia and the Middle East. Uh, and I think in many ways Syria may never be a state again. Um, so I, I think that's the world we're going to, where you have new powers that are ruling, but they're not nation states. They're something different. Wow, I've never thought of that. I've never thought about the fact that, especially with this growing wealth gap when you think about technology coming along and just exacerbating that exponentially i mean when you can just own right. a, a, a team of robots that does everything i cannot even fathom where this wealth gap is going but then what do you do with it well okay we're going to take these resources how are we going to take oh we're just going to take them because we have more money than the entire country i've never thought of that well not only that but what's happening now too is in in most of human history there have been mercenaries. Most of warfare is private warfare. From biblical times to the Roman Empire, which, you know, the Roman Empire was mostly run, you know, was, they hired out most of the military was mercenary, not, not legions. Um, and uh, the Middle Ages, they were called, actually, the mercenaries weren't called, they weren't called mercenaries, they're called contatori, which means contractor, which is what we call them today. And it's only in the last 150 years that we've actually seen you know, national standing armies monopolize force around the world. That's an anomaly, and that's going away. We're going back to, we're resetting back to normal, which is force, uh, military power is a commodity on the marketplace that you can buy or trade. And what's happening now is that we're seeing mercenaries reemerge around the world so that the world's random billionaires, oligarchs, whomever, multinational corporations can hire them to do anything they want. And we're already seeing oil companies do this around the world. The extractive industry is leading this. Uh, and so are oligarchs, as you can imagine. But we're getting to a point where people 
Well, anybody who's rich enough uh, who can afford mercenaries can wage war for any reason they want, no matter how petty. And that's what it was like in the Middle Ages and antiquity, and it's, it's going to be like more in the future. And again, that's normal if you look at the world. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying that's what we want. But I'm saying looking objectively at history as much as one can, this is common, and we're returning to it. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Blinkist. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more, especially when the likes of social media can be so addictive and time-consuming. So you may think you don't have time to read a book or to develop yourself. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. I like Blinkist because, well, let's face it, I don't have that much time, but in less than 15 minutes, I can fast-track my path to a more informed self. For example, I just went through the four-hour work week. That's a huge book, and Blinkist distilled it to the most important key takeaways. All right, so here's what you have to do. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com smart to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com smart to start your free seven-day trial. Again, that's Blinkist.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. I need more clarification. I mean, and for everyone listening, maybe this is common knowledge, so pardon my ignorance, but I guess because living in this bubble, right, in, in near D.C., in America, et cetera, I never thought about the fact, say I had $100 billion or I'm the head of a, a big oil company or whatever, I can essentially hire a uh, an army and go take over some either land or group uh, for my own personal gain. And I know it happens. I just never really thought of it because I think of it as illegal. And I think about it specifically if I am an American and like to think that our government has a decent stance on law and rules, that we would be prosecuted for that. I know it's not true. I'm just saying. Um, sure. What, what is an example of, say, the most egregious that's happening now of somebody just yielding wealth, taking power, almost just for their own individual gain? It's a great question. It's actually a lot. So first of all, mercenaries fight in the shadows. One of my rules uh, is actually about the, the emergence of shadow war. When this is like war is going to be fought underground, war is going underground, it's becoming more sneaky. And mercenaries are a favorite tool because you don't know who they work for. They're, they're even more secret than the CIA or Special Operations Forces or SEAL Team 6. And they are, some of them are very good. Some of them are complete garbage. They, they, there's a big spectrum. But say, for example, you are a, uh, a monarch of a very small but rich Gulf state in the Middle East. Okay? And you're Sunni, and you want to assassinate your political opponents, and you want to kill, say, Houthis in Yemen that are sponsored by Iran, your enemy. What you do is you hire ex- U.S. SEALs and U.S. Green Beret Special Forces to become hunter-killer assassination squads, which happened last wait, year. Wait, so wait, these, these are Americans that are essentially like, hey, I'll kill anyone you want for a price? Yeah, they, they've left 
the seals. They've left the, the sure. green berets. Yeah, and that, yeah, exactly. Are they and, still uh, citizens? Because that has to be illegal. It is probably illegal. I don't know if they're still citizens. I don't. I don't think there's. I don't know if there's any repercussions. Wow. Part of the problem is is that one of the reasons why you can nobody can regulate. There's no laws of war. There's no international law for mercenaries. Let me tell you why. Even if you had it, it wouldn't be worth the paper it's printed on because who's going to go into Syria or Ukraine or Nigeria or Somalia or the Congo or Yemen where all these mercenaries are fighting? Who's going to go in there and arrest those mercenaries? Is it going to be the Marines? No. Is it going to be United Nations? Don't make me laugh. (laughs) Right? And even if you did send in the UN into Yemen to arrest mercenaries or to, to Syria to arrest mercenaries, which is pretty cynical given all the humanitarian you know, problems there, um, the mercenaries can shoot your law enforcement dead. I mean, mercenaries are no joke. Modern mercenaries are not like the caricature, the rabble you see depicted in, as Hollywood villains. These are like private SEAL teams. Uh, in Nigeria, for example, in 2015, Everybody remembers Boko Haram. The, they're still there. Like this, this oh, yeah. Yeah, fundamentalist Islamic group who abducted 300 or so schoolgirls t- to rape them, you know, yep. make them their, quote, wise, right? And they disappeared. And for six years, the Nigerian military, which is not a small military, it's Nigeria is like the regional hegemon of West Africa. For six years, the Nigerian military could not deal with Boko Haram. In 2015, the government of Nigeria secretly hired mercenaries to assist their military, and they, in weeks, they pushed Boko Haram out of Nigeria. Wow. Weeks. Wow. Yeah. And these mercenaries showed up. They weren't like lone dudes with Kalashnikovs. Sure. They showed up in, in Soviet helicopter gunships, like flying tanks. This, is, this is blowing my mind. It, yeah. It, it's blowing my mind because... Gosh, I'm so naive. I mean, so I'm not speaking for mercenaries from other countries. Uh, And and maybe is that more often the case or is it just as often ex-seals or or coming from places like America and Europe, uh, you know, these these large, as we call them, nation states? Are they coming from are they trained there oftentimes? Yeah. So think of mercenaries like a T-shirt in the modern financial world, the global world, right? A T-shirt is made, it can be made in Bangladesh or India or the Philippines. You go where the labor's cheap, and then they ship it around the world, and it ends up in Walmarts, you know, in Ashburn, Virginia, for example, right? <laughs> and, but a mercenary, you know, it's a commodity. We're, we're commodifying conflict, which is very dangerous, by the way, because um, what happens, you have market failure, but leaving that aside, um, you, go where, uh, you go where the labor is good and cheap, or good value is. And I spent several years in this world, um, mostly in Africa, but parts of Eastern Europe and some other things. And I'll tell you, <clears throat> the, way it, the way the world works for the mercenary world, it's all done by, um, because it's an illicit business still, more or less. It's illicit, even though it's becoming more common. Um, you do it by language groups. So you have English speakers. So I'm an English speaker. I would, I would recruit a lot from like American, but Australian, New Zealand, UK, Canadian. I never done anybody from Canada, but but the, those those are the people I would go to, you know, because we we have a certain cultural military cultural viewpoint. We sort of have similar tactics and la- command language. 
but there's a Soviet, ex-Soviet version, like these Russian groups, and there's this very powerful mercenary company called the, Vag- the, the Wagner Group, which we should talk about. Okay. Um, there's also sp- like Spanish, Latin Americans, ex-Special Forces in Yemen. Uh, they're, they're, they're all over the place. Um, and they are, the reason nobody's heard of them is because, A, the U.S. is too busy in a sort of, um, you know, this, the, you know, the, the current situation in the White House has got everybody fixated on that. But the world around us and corners of the world are on fire that we don't see. Right. Uh, and that's the big worry. And it's, it's places like Yemen. It's going to be places like Libya that are going to explode at some point. The Middle East is still a mess and probably will be for a very long time. That's where you're seeing the mercenaries. Those are the conflict markets, and that's where things are going. Wow. Well, I don't want to spend the whole interview on it. It's just it's a fascinating topic that I knew existed but didn't know much about, which is the point of this podcast. So some other things I really want to make sure we cover, because your book is all about the new rules of war. It's talking about the the old, the current, and, and what's coming. Uh, tell me a little bit about China and Russia. Like, what's going on? Are they a threat? Are they an ally? Can we just all live happily ever after? Is Trump really in Putin's back pocket? I mean, what do you know sitting on that, that uh, you know, ivory tower you have there in D.C.? Well, look, I, I wrote the new rules of war because I think we are thinking about war in all the wrong ways. We are uh, we have a paradigm of of what warfare will be. And it's basically you ever heard that the, the phrase, um, you know, generals always fight the last war or they always fight the last successful war. Um, this truism happens to be true. And for us, what that means is that we are we think the future of war is World War II with better technology. And that's dangerously wrong because the rules of war that govern World War II, for example, do not exist. I'm not talking about the laws of war, it's an ethical thing, I'm talking about the strategy of warfare itself has changed fundamentally. And the war has moved on. And the world has moved with it except for us. And powers like Russia and China are using our, our, our basically our broken idea of what warfare is against us. We are already at war with China. We don't know it. That's by design. And um, it, you know, a better analogy for thinking about what we're doing with China and Russia is like the Cold War. I don't want to go down too far that road because it's not like the Cold War in many ways. But basically, it's how do you fight? How do you fight a, a contending power in the world without actually without going to a hot war? And that's what China is doing. And it's not doing it with with nuclear weapons or aircraft carriers. It's doing it doing using sneaky things like buying up all of Hollywood. You know, that's a very powerful weapon because that means you cannot make a movie that stars a Chinese villain. Think about it. When was the wow. last time you saw a Chinese, a negative Chinese movie? It's not, you can't do it. You can't, it can't get produced. That is very powerful. They did that, that's a deliberate thing. That's not like, oh, it happened to be this way. Um, it's called soft power, international relations theory, and they are buying it. Uh, they're doing things like lawfare, where they manipulate international law deliberately. They're doing other things. They're playing by a different set of rules. Meanwhile, we're investing in things like F-35s, which cost, you know, the program costs more than Russia's GDP, and the thing doesn't go to combat, you know? When was the last time we had a, a strategic dogfight in the air? It was the Korean War. So why are we investing more money into very expensive fireplanes that don't go to war? It's just nuts. 
So, uh, and Russia is doing the same thing. Um, so we, we have adversaries who, who want to see us, they want to knock us off the king of the hill, if you will, and replace them. And we're not fighting smart, we're fighting hard. On that note, are we not doing the same thing? See, and this is where the knowledge gap between most and perhaps yourself really is, is extensive because I always think it's hypocritical for us to say don't do that because we're probably doing it. Russia hacks us. I'm sure we've been hacking them for decades sure. and decades. But I don't know this to be true. So the equivalent of them buying Hollywood or, you know, all these things, are we doing the exact same thing or are we actually failing in that regard? Um, we ha we do a lot of these things. You're absolutely right. We're, uh, we don't do them. Uh, I mean, the difference between Beijing and, and us is this, is that Beijing, they control all their corporations, right? It's all state run. Uh, yeah. And, and ours are, ours are not, ours are independent. So if you, maybe your listeners will remember, I don't know when a year ago or so, there was like a terrorist attack or something in LA and the police needed to get the uh, unlock an iPhone. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and, Apple and like Apple it. said, no, we're yeah. not gonna do it. Yeah. Now, if, if that were a Beijing, if this were China, and Beijing told this corporation, give us their iPhone, they said, yes, sir. When do you need to buy? You know, it's right. it's totally so. China wields corporations, and they wields they do like cyber espionage that's commercial. We don't do that, for example. We we only do national security uh, cyber attacks. We don't do it to, to benefit. You know, uh, you know, I don't know, ExxonMobil when it goes negotiating with a Chinese oil company. They, so they, they do things, but of course they are, you know, we are also a democracy and we don't want to give up our soul to become more autocratic, which is what China is. So uh, one of the big questions about the future is, do autocracies, are they more adept at this type of warfare, modern warfare than us? Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to, to wrap the brain around. I want to, given the, the time frame we have, and again, I say this in many interviews, but if this is something where you're just devouring it, which I, I'm pretty sure people are, you know, every step in detail is in this book, right? The New Rules of War. So we can't cover everything. I do my best. But I, I would be remiss if we don't talk about what we are currently dealing with, this idea of terrorism, mostly with a religious ideology backing it. So I just listened to this podcast called The Caliphate, and it is phenomenal. For anyone listening, go listen to the caliphate. It's incredible. And it really gave me an inside view into ISIS and some things like that. And it, it was terrifying because I wonder how can we fight religious ideology? How can we fight terrorism that bases its whole meaning on something that cannot be proven, such as religion, and you're going to go to heaven, and this is, or whatever it's called, uh, and this is what you should be doing. Is it something that we can I don't know if you want to say defeat, but deal with in a better way. So rule number five uh, of my book is called the best weapons do not fire bullets. And it answers in part this question. The enemy is not ISIS or Al Qaeda or Al Nusra, you know, it is the virulent ideology that produces these groups. So unless you stake the ideology in, you know, with a wooden stake and mallet, you're just going to see, you know, ISIS 2.0, ISIS 3.0, and we're going to see that because our we're fighting ISIS as if it's World War II. We want to, you know, capture their land and kill their leaders. 
that doesn't solve the problem unless you address the ideology. And some of the things that you could do, uh, we kind of already do, but we don't do them very well. One is we have to improve our strategic messaging. So we, we can reach out to moderates before they get taken over and coerced by extremists. We don't do that. We, even though we've been fighting terrorism for 20 years, we are just bad at that. Yeah, and there's there's more. I mean, according to this podcast, there are more members of ISIS now than at 9-11 and yeah. within a couple of years after it. Right. Uh, the other thing you can we can do, this is a question. I'm, I'm putting this out as a question, not advocating we should do it. Um, but, you know, denigration is a very, very powerful tool. Um, so if some of your listeners may remember, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, some Danish newspaper showed a, a cartoon of of Muhammad with a bomb in his turban. Oh yeah, is it, well, didn't that lead to the um, the attack on the news? Uh, yeah, what, yeah. There were there were riots around the world. People got killed. It was amazing of denigration. Now it's funny that happens, but when a Muslim kills another Muslim in Iraq with a suicide vest, which is double forbidden. First of all, suicide is very forbidden in, in Islam. And Muslim on Muslim violence is also doubly forbidden. When that happens, which should be a legitimate outrage, nobody really seems to care. The international, the, the Muslim ummah, the community yawns at that. But when Muhammad is depicted in a, in a ridiculous way, there is a strong reaction against that. There might be something for us there. Now, I'm not suggesting we should do that, but there are weapons that are available. We just haven't thought about using them. Um, and there's other things we could do as well. I talk about several different types of behavioral campaigns, uh, you know, that that in the book about how you can influence things. Now, we used to do this in the Cold War, right? <laughs> but we, we've forgotten how to do that. Throughout history, whether you go back to the Crusades or, you know, other types of, I guess, religious warfare, Eventually, I look at it as, and this could be completely wrong, but we have evolved past that, right? So each group has had to kind of take its lumps, and then generationally, with education and information, we move past it. Is that something we can rely on with, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but what seems to be Islam being the driving force of terrorism? Will they eventually move past it? It's a great question. I don't know. I do not know the answer. I mean, for for Muslims in that region in Levant, the Crusades are in their memory. To us, it's distant. To them, it's not. Uh. Right. Um, the the real rift right now is the Sunni Shia divide. The, there's an ancient war that predates states in the Middle East. Anybody who looks at the Middle East and only looks at it through the lens of states will get lost. They will not understand it. What is really going on is that there's an ancient war between Sunni and Shia. This is a little oversimplifying it. It started on Muhammad's deathbed about who would take over the Muslim community or the Ummah. And from this division, we get Sunni and Shia. The Shia are sort of Iran, but there's a Shia crescent that stretches from Lebanon through the Alawite uh, regime of Syria, which is you know, Assad, down to you know, Yemen the Houthis in Yemen. And against that are, are Sunni, which is sort of the center of that is Riyadh, but it's all the Gulf states, it's North Africa, it's Jordan, it's, it's the other parts of the Middle East, leaving Turkey out of it. And they are at war right now, and we are were, we were caught in the middle. And, uh, this, and that war has waxed and waned for 1,400 years. 
so it's hard to know what the future of that war will be. Well, speaking of the future of that war and all wars, and one one thing that you mention in the book, specifically as we discussed in this Shadow Wars, is that America is being left behind. And we do have a global audience, but heavily skewed towards America, Canada, Australia. What can we do to, and see, here's where it gets tough, because I don't want to say to keep our stake at the top of the world or whatever you want to call it, because I don't even know if we're there and I don't even know if that's the right thing to say. But to keep as much peace as possible, to keep some semblance of societal norms. You talk about the future of war, and I just kind of want to end it on maybe a positive note or an action item. <laughs> what, yeah. what can we do? Well, I mean, we have to, first of all, we have to think seriously about where we want to be as a nation. What's our soul? Uh, we, we have not had this conversation. We haven't really been forced to. We had this conversation after World War II when the Soviet was rising uh, you know, uh, in the dawn of that threat, and we had to think about it. Uh, we, haven't, we need a moment like that again. Uh, right now, we're in a self-introspective moment, I think, with Trump, pro or con. But I think beyond that, it's unlikely. I mean, the U.S. has a grand strategy where it sets itself up as the casino owner in the world order and invites everybody to play in the casino, and we set the house rules and we win by it. That is starting to, to fray and go away, and I think that's inevitable. The question is, you know, what, what do we really want to do? Do we want to sort of be preeminent everywhere? Are we prepared to pay that price? Americans don't like seeing dead Marines. Um, so I think we need to be a little bit more humble in what is, what is achievable and what we want to do. Uh, and I think we also have to prepare ourselves that the last 70 years have been relatively peaceful for America. The next 70 may not be. And, that, and I think we just have to prepare ourselves for that as well. Um, and I'm not, I know I'd like to end on a positive note, but I think the positive note is, is that we can do that. Uh, I think by thinking about it is where we start. If we keep on, on the same trajectory that we're on right now, the U.S. is going to fail because even an undefeated military can lose. But we don't have to. War has changed. We must change with it. And that's why I wrote The New Rules of War. If we fight smarter, if we fight as others are fighting, I think we can, we can pr not just persevere, but be victorious, be uh, you know, sort of dominant uh, in a world and set its conditions rather than being set under somebody else's conditions. Rather than speaking Chinese, we can speak English to the Chinese. Ah. So I think that's, that's the, the good news. I think we just need to, it's a question, we already have the best troops, the best training, the best technology, the best resourced military. What we need to do is we need to upgrade our strategic IQ, which is not that hard if you think about it. And if we do that, then we will succeed. Well, and that's the thing, the amount of money we spend on the military. And I know you have a specific section talking about it's not about technology and, and all this. But come on, we're smart. We've got money. Isn't that the golden ticket? And I guess to this point, it has been. And what you wrote about is to say, here's how we continue that. And you mentioned something there that I, I think while I have you on, uh, I'd just like to get your opinion. So, Trump, with the... The resignation of uh, Mattis and I actually just read there was another four star general, I believe, that that resigned, said he couldn't do his job a couple days ago. Where do we stand at this exact moment with our ability to govern, to use military force globally with him as our uh, commander in chief? And again, 
not necessarily saying, you know, good or bad, he is, but I'm just saying, is it as dire as it can seem when you have some of the most intelligent military minds just throwing up their hands? President Trump is a commander in chief, but he's not an absolute monarch. And that we and our founding fathers and mothers um, were deeply skeptical about concentrating too much power in anybody's hands. So the idea of, of the United States, you know, of Trump creating a serious war for some short-term personal gain, as some people I think have articulated, I think is a bit over-exaggerated. Uh, also, there, there's many people in the system who get a vote, including professional military advisors, um, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, so I, I don't think we should worry too much about you know, us going to war tomorrow because of some you know, somewhat might say a petty uh, political objective today. Um, but I do think that this administration is testing the elasticity of our political institutions. Uh, so we'll see what yeah. <laughs> we'll see what we're made of, what metal we're made of after this. Right. So that's the cliffhanger we'll leave it on. Uh, Sean, first, just again, thank you so much for being on. The book is fantastic. I actually have two copies here, uh, one for me, one for John. It's The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder. So, Sean, before we let you go, uh, where else can people find you? Are you writing more? Do you blog, tweet, etc.? Let us know. So you can find me at my website, seanmcfate.com. Um, you can, I also am working on a third novel right now. I, my, I began novel writing as a memoir of something I did, uh, in Africa. And my agent was like, no, no, no. If you write that as a memoir, you'll get sued to death. So turn it into wow. fiction. And now it's launched a series. So, um, the Tom Locke series, but it's thinly veiled reality actually. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm working on that. Uh, and I tweet at Sean, Mc, uh, Sean McFate. So I look forward to answering any emails. And I do, I do check my emails from my website, uh, any questions people might have. Yeah, shoot them on over, guys, and, and, and tweet at him. Let us know what you think. Let us know your questions. I'd love to carry on this conversation because I'm just continuing to learn as we all are. So, Sean, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. And yet another episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Sean McFate. Sean's book, The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase Sean's book or any other book that we've ever mentioned on the show through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And as always, you can find out more information about the podcast, see all the past episodes, sign up for the newsletter, and all that good stuff over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we will see you all next episode. In today's age, it can be hard to sit down and learn more. You may think you don't have time to read a book. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com smart to start your free seven-day trial. 
That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash smart to start your free seven-day trial. Again, Blinkist.com slash smart. Smart. 